This is Terry Crosby. Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Welcome again, listeners, to the next podcast. Uh, We are excited that you're with us again. We have a good show today, and we look forward to a conversation that we'll have. Welcome, Andy. Good to be here, Terry. So our listeners may remember an interview we did back in the fall with Barry Slowenwhite, who was the Compassion Canada's president and CEO. And at that particular time, he mentioned that he was retiring after 35 years with the ministry. Compassion Canada's board of directors has announced a new president-elect right now, and she will become the president and CEO on October 25th of this year. Her name is Allison Alley. Allison has become, will become the fourth president of Compassion Canada. Welcome to the podcast, Allison. It's great to be with you both, Terry and Andy. Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and what led you to this position and this full time of uh, ministry? Oh, wow. That I have to tell you, for as much as it's my story and I lived through it, I always find it one of the most difficult things to uh, share uh, in a way that people can follow and understand because it really has been a whirlwind journey of God closing and opening doors and really moving me from where I was to where he wanted me to be. Um, as, as far as who I am, maybe that's the easier question to answer. First of all, I'm a wife and a mother. So I've been married to my husband, Tommy, for 17 years, and we have two daughters, a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old. I often say as well, I'm a learner. So I have a Master of Arts in Global Leadership and International Development from Fuller Theological Seminary. And in the next two weeks, Lord willing, I will be completed my MBA at Ivy Business School. Um, But I'm also a child advocate. My uh, work with compassion and sense of calling into ministry really did come from a deep-rooted sense of God calling my family, not just myself, to be advocates for kids and the poor. And so uh, the short version of how this all happened would be that seven years ago, I had this great awakening where I felt like God removed the barriers and the blinders uh, in my own life to realize that I had been quite narrowly focused on my own little world, on my own kids and providing for them, and was neglecting to see those around me, both those locally and those globally. So he led me on a path of a few faithful steps, one of which was sponsoring a child at an organization I knew very little about at the time called Compassion Canada. And from there, I became more and more involved in the ministry until they invited me to come on board into full-time vocational ministry with them. Today on the podcast, we are going to do a little reflection of an incident that happened 25 years ago. So the United Nations has set aside April 7th as the Day of Remembrance of the Victims of the Rwanda Genocide. So this year, 2019, marks the 25th anniversary of the genocide, where an estimated 1 million people, with the majority of those who were killed were of the Tutsi ethnic group at that time. But Compassion Canada has been working uh, very carefully and intentionally towards reconciliation and healing within that country and outside. Just take a listen to this video right now. A million people died in a period of three months. A million people everywhere was dead bodies. One morning, my brother, Damasen, he came to my room 
and he told me, he said, you are sleeping. You don't know what happened. The president of the country died. I'm like, what? He said, yeah, they shot his plane. I remember I got up from my bed, jumped and picked up my jeans and put on and a shirt. It was the last clothes I put on for the next four months. Immaculate Ilibigeza, a 24-year-old college student, had just become a target for Hutu gunmen. They started to say how Tutsis, our tribe, killed the president and how they were going to kill every Tutsi to take revenge. My father asked me to go to a neighbor to hide. And this neighbor was from the other tribe, a Hutu. He was a Protestant minister. He went through the house and opened the door of the bathroom and pushed me there. We were eight people. Eight women hiding in this tiny bathroom, death lurking just outside. One time I stood up, I looked through this window, this little piece of window in the bathroom, and I couldn't believe what I saw. I saw the killers, they were coming to search. It was about maybe three to four hundred. They were going through the window like, one, wow, going, going. And they screamed loud like, we're going to get Tootsies, we're going to find them. To know that somebody who's come to kill you, I mean, you are facing death in a few minutes. So for our listeners, can you share a little bit more about what happened in Rwanda between April 7th and July 15th of 1994? Sure. So genocide would be considered one of the worst crimes against humanity. It would be this planned mass killing of a racial, ethnic, or religious group. And so the Rwandan genocide in particular was a state-led genocide that targeted the Tutsi ethnic group, as you said, that was started by Hutu nationalists. And so this went on for 100 days from April 7, 1994, until mid-July. And in that time, nearly uh, one million citizens were killed. And I would say what made the Rwandan genocide so brutal and so unique is that it was neighbor against neighbor. It was normal, everyday people that were encouraged over radio broadcasts to slaughter their Tutsi neighbors. Allison, what is it that has uh, really drawn you into this uh, topic, particularly with Rwanda and as well Compassion Canada? Yeah, so Compassion has been working in Rwanda since uh, 1984, so before the genocide even started. And Compassion's model is one that we partner exclusively with local churches, not just in Rwanda, but in 25 countries around the world, to holistically care for children living in extreme poverty. So to care for them spiritually, socially, physically, and cognitively. So, of course, once the genocide transpired, Our local church partners who were already there, today we have about 400 church partners across the country, then we had about uh, 250, were asking themselves what their role was to provide ongoing care for kids and their families in light of this nightmare that transpired. Um, And we can talk more about what that looked like practically. For me personally, as I've engaged in Compassion's ministry, I've had the privilege of traveling around the world and meeting kids in 
in our program, meeting frontline church partners, meeting our staff. And I had the opportunity to be in Rwanda a couple years ago and to see and hear firsthand, not just the tragedy that happened in that country, but the hope and the healing and the reconciliation that the local church has been leading uh, in many ways since the years of the genocide. Why don't we get into that? Let's talk about that tragedy and how something like this could take place, because I think that's one of the big questions a lot of us are thinking. I mean, how is it possible that you can have hundreds of thousands, you know, nearly a million people murdered brutally? A lot of people don't realize that this this wasn't done with guns. Most of it was done with mm-hmm. machetes and tire iron type thing. Like just these were brutal murders of the Tutsis. So, like, how, how is this possible? And then and then let's get into. What does reconciliation look like in the midst of something so horrific? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, of course, like any of these situations, a couple things. Number one, it doesn't happen overnight. And number two, it's incredibly complex. You know, the not happening overnight, the history of Rwanda would be that there was a Hutu uprising in the 1950s that resulted in a civil war that basically ended Tutsi domination. And when uh, the Rwanda gained independence, basically over 100,000 plus Rwandans fled the country, mostly Tutsis. And at that point, Hutu leaders gained control. As time went on in the 80s, these exile groups basically made political and military moves to repatriate, which caused civic and cultural tensions. And so, you know, going into the 90s, there were these peacemaking attempts by the United Nations and by different government bodies, but they were unsuccessful until it led to what I would say is an inciting incident. So on uh, April 6th, the Rwandan president and the Burundi president, both Hutus, uh, were killed in an attack on their airplane while returning from peace negotiations. And that inciting incident is what launched this 100-day spree of brutal violence. Of course, the complexity is that it was perpetuated through this radio broadcast and in a way that incited fear among people about their neighbors and really did lead them to do things that historically would have been uncharacteristic. So again, very, very complex, Mm -hmm. uh, but it happened with seeds of division and hate and what I would say is kind of otherizing uh, people in their country. Now, I want to get deeper into that. Uh, in a moment here, because dehumanization is really at the core of Mm -hmm. any genocide. But Mm -hmm. I don't know if any of your research uh, had involved going back even a little bit farther, back to the time of King Leopold and the Belgium's desire for colonies, particularly in Africa, and the colonization of Rwanda. So I've found how interesting it is that the division between Hutu and Tutsis really took place by the, an outsider, from my understanding, Belgium, in the desire to colonize. You know what? Yeah, you are exactly right. It does go quite a bit further. And it was, as I mentioned, when Rwanda gained independence from Belgium. So that they definitely were involved in this. But as you said, dehumanization is a really, really complex topic. And, you know, often when we're talking about this in the Canadian context, it may not be a popular thing to say, but I think it's quite important for us to understand that these things don't happen overnight. And it does begin with a seeds 
of division. And as I said, this sense of otherizing others until one day these seeds have grown into this full-blown hatred. And, you know, as we know, as Christians, I would say the main motif in Scripture would be God's universal love for all people, that he loves people regardless of race, religion, gender, socioeconomic status, and that he came to break these dividing walls. So as we think about reconciliation and how that can happen and what has been happening in Rwanda is very much, in my experience and what I've had the opportunity to observe, is the church working to continue to break down those dividing walls, continuing to reconcile those who come from different backgrounds and religions and gender, as I said, socioeconomic status. That is interesting. I recently was talking with my kids after dinner about this passage in Ephesians when the Apostle Paul says that Jesus has come to tear down, you know, these walls of, of division or hostility. And it's interesting, we often forget, you know, for a Jew, they would have really understood this idea that there was a wall of hostility that was between you and God, particularly in the temple. And then there's this wall between, you know, the outsiders, right? You know, the Gentiles and the Jews. And, and this is a core aspect of Christianity is to tear down these mm-hmm. walls and that, that there is unity amongst our diversity that comes through Christ, which is really powerful because you're right. We, we live in a world that tends to put up walls and tends to divide each other from one another. And one of the foundational ways that sadly we do this as human beings is to not see another human being as fully human, as, as something less than human. And when we begin to do that, because I think this is something that a lot of people uh, really miss when they historically look at things like slavery or they mm-hmm. look at things like genocide, you know, and wonder, you know, well, those people must have been monsters back then. Well, no, like you said, they were normal people like your neighbor, but their worldview had been so distorted that they no longer saw their neighbor as their neighbor. They saw them as something less than human. And, and when that takes place, man, you're capable of anything. Yeah. You know, a couple things I, you know, when we talk about the ministry of reconciliation, this is really at the heart of the gospel message, right? It was central to what Jesus achieved through his death on the cross, that if we are to be reconciled with God, then we are to be reconciled with others. You know, as Paul says in Ephesians, for he is our peace in his flesh. He has made both groups into one and he has broken down the dividing wall, the hostility between us. And I think that is our mandate as Christ followers to be those who break down dividing walls in our everyday lives. And as you said, you know, our worldview, of course, is is culturally informed and it doesn't change overnight, nor are we always aware of it. And so I often, when we talk about something like extreme poverty, compassion will take it all the way back to the fall and talk about the fact that, you know, God created a world where poverty couldn't exist. It was a world of abundance and shalom and peace. And of course, when sin entered the world, things got broken. Our relationship with God was broken. Our relationship with ourselves was broken. Our relationship with one another was broken. And our relationship with the created world around us was broken. And so in very real terms, you could say that we are all broken people 
in broken relationships who build um, a broken world through things like broken systems where extreme poverty or injustice or slavery can exist in this world. And one of the most simple but yet kind of profound ways that I think we can start to process it and combat against it in our own lives, both as uh, Westerners, as Christ followers, is to recognize that God created human beings in his image, right? And once we understand that we were all created in the image of God, uh, both in and through relationship and for relationship, then we recognize that we were all created with gifts and skills and capacity and purpose and agency. And for as much as we tend to see our differences, um, you know, we really are created both uniquely, but with, um, you know, God-given gifts and skills that we can and should use for the purposes that he has called us to. And, And again, it sounds so fundamental, but I think when we can start to see people not as others, but as created in God's image, I think that's the starting point for so many of us. This is a great transition here. So we've been talking about dehumanization and really what you're talking about now is humanization. And one of the things I think is so powerful there, and this is one of the things I love about Compassion International is, is it going back to this, you know, this idea of walls is we, when we put up walls between us and other people, we really can't see their humanity And I think one of the most powerful walls that we have tends to be our oceans, tends to be our borders, those sorts of things. And I don't know what's going on in that country, right? And it reminds me of that child that sadly washed up on shore. Do you remember that? Was a couple yes. of years ago where that child, the Syrian, was it a Syrian uh, refugee washed up on shore? And now, and now all of a sudden people cared about what was going on right. in Syria, right? Because it humanized it. Now something had washed over the, the wall, if you will. And we're like, oh my goodness, this is a human being. And mm-hmm. this is one of the things I love about compassion is really you are recognizing the humanity of these children and our need to care for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What, you know, a few things related to that. Number one, at Compassion, we talk a lot about ensuring that kids are known, loved, and protected. And the mere ability for them to be known, which means, you know, to be seen, to be identified, is really, really significant because it's not uncommon both in a local context, never mind when you start talking globally, whether we actually see, to your point, and humanize individuals or if we see them as numbers and statistics. But even in their own backyard, people who are living in extreme poverty can often be invisible to those in society. You know, they're pushed away to the margins. They're often quite literally not uh, given a birth certificate. Some kids aren't named, um, you know, aren't given access to goods and to services. And so for them to be seen, first of all, and then to be known uh, is really significant. And so the way we do that as compassion, as I mentioned, is we partner with local church, local churches, uh, because we would say uh, the church is not only God's chosen instrument to bring hope and healing to our lost and broken world, but they have the proximity to the need. They have the capability, uh, the credibility in a local context of people who understand local needs. Um, and are going to be there for the long haul. So absolutely, the ability for us to know them and then to protect them, to be able to immediately address whatever those life-threatening needs are in their lives. 
and then to be able to systematically work with them to develop them spiritually, socially, physically, and cognitively. But to your point earlier, the way we do that is we also work to connect them with a loving sponsor around the world. And one of the things that I've been so impacted by in Compassion's ministry is that if we see compassion, and I certainly do, as a bridge between the resourced and the under-resourced church, as a bridge between a supporter and a child, we see how God has been able to use compassion to impact both lives. Of course, both the child and the church living in the context of extreme poverty, but the individual supporter and local churches here in Canada who are recognizing, you could say, their own poverty, the poverty of the non-poor, whether it be uh, their lack of community or lack of spiritual intimacy um, or lack of uh, personal understanding, maybe isolation, maybe pride, maybe God complex. And so, you know, it's been incredible to see how God has used our humble ministry to impact lives around here, too, and to help them see their own lives in Canada as they see other lives more clearly. When you view some uh, of the videos online of the genocide, you really recognize how many children were affected by this, whether they were killed or left without parents. Um, Mm -hmm. What are some different ways that you're seeing children respond to the pain they've experienced at that time? Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, what I would say, first of all, is after the Rwandan genocide, there was a kind of a, a ripple effect throughout the country. Of course, survivors were physically and psychologically damaged. Uh, families were torn apart. Uh, homes, communities destroyed. So there was an impact on infrastructure. A million people were displaced within the country. And many, of course, were thrust into deep, life-threatening poverty and just never made their way out. So from Compassion's perspective, it became evident in the aftermath of the genocide that trauma counseling and initiatives that promoted both personal and interpersonal healing would be quite important in our work with kids. And so we started exactly that. We worked with various therapists and counselors and were able to bring in resources uh, to rural areas where those resources may not have been immediately accessible otherwise and really helped in a local, contextual, church-driven way these kids be able to process what they went through and to be given uh, tools and frameworks uh, to be able to understand it, declare what it was, and to be able to take steps towards healing. Before the uh, we started this podcast, I was telling Allison that last year we filmed The Human Project, as some of our listeners would know. One of the, the first film that we did was on the subject of what is human. And we wanted to film in Rwanda, but things weren't coming together with that. But we ended up filming in Uganda, which worked out well because I came to learn that many of the refugees, the Tutsi refugees, then those who were fleeing the genocide fled to Uganda. And, mm-hmm. and I've had the privilege of meeting uh, a number of them that are still there. But we told a story that's a part of this human project to get people dialoguing on this subject. And it's, it's a story that's done from the perspective of a child, a child mm-hmm. that becomes an adult and that's wrestling through what's taking place. But also now as an adult is now having the responsibility of how are they going to look at people from another tribe? like the Hutus, or, you know, on a broader scale, just the tribalism that we find ourselves in, whether that be in Rwanda or that be here in in North America, it's very easy to fall into our own tribalism. And there's this 
again, coming back to this need for breaking down walls and, and seeking reconciliation, there's this constant need to readjust our perspective. I think this is something a lot of people don't fully appreciate is just how easy it can be for us to start to not to see correctly. Uh, mm-hmm. Which, again, is one of those things I love that compassion does. As you tell the story of these children, as you have a picture of these children and begin to, you know, get your perspective straight once again. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. First of all, I, you know, I have also been on filming projects both in Rwanda and in Uganda and would agree it's hard to move anywhere throughout those countries without hearing individual stories of people who have been impacted directly by the genocide and how as the generations are uh, passing, it is still top of mind and everyone has their story. And therefore, it's important that we continue to talk about what the mindset was that contributed to the genocide, how to continue to guard against it, as you said, to recognize tribalism and how so many people can fall into that and how that plays out. And to continue to help people process what happened and lead them through um, their reconciliation efforts. Because it's funny, as I was chatting with people uh, a couple months ago, they were saying, well, most of the kids that were in the genocide are adults now. So help me understand why you're talking about kids and genocide today. But I think it's important for people to understand that the genocide caused what we would call an orphan crisis, you know, not just from the genocide directly, but from the HIV AIDS epidemic that was related to it. Because, uh, as you know, rape was used as a weapon, uh, which also contributed to loss of life through HIV AIDS. And in light of that, there is now generations of youth held households and kids who were living in foster home or growing up without their parents. And we came to realize that, you know, we dealt with reconciliations really early on in the 90s. And then you realize you can't take your hand off of that because these kids who grew up without direct impact, but without parents are continually indirectly impacted by the genocide. And so to your point, to find ways for them to understand and to process it and to recognize where they may have their own mindsets or anger, which can uh, lead to all kinds of destructive behaviors when it's not addressed. And instead to help them address it in a way that they can become empowered and motivated to make a difference in their own lives and communities. There's so many tragic stories that have come from this. But as you're there, as you're interacting with people, do you see some hope in the situation that it is now? Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. First of all, on a really practical level, it's difficult not to go throughout uh, Rwanda and see the efforts that have happened. So I would say that I've seen this concerted effort to promote healing and reconciliation in every aspect of society, in churches, which I've talked about, in governments and individuals, NGOs. Um, You know, one such example in 1999, I believe, the Rwandan government established this National Unity and Reconciliation Commission. And so their mandate was to promote social cohesion among Rwandans and to build a country in which everyone has rights, can contribute to good governance, and to really fight this genocide ideology, you could call it. But on a really grassroots level, I've had the privilege to hear so many stories from kids and adults. One that I'm reminded of is a young lady called Christine. 
So Christine lost uh, both parents in the genocide at age four. In fact, her story is one that she was running with her mother. And as her mom saw the opposition closing in, she dropped her and said, run. Her aunt ended up picking her up and carrying her the rest of the way. And as Christine turned around, she saw her mom just brutally murdered. Within a year, she was entered into the compassion program at a local church. And throughout that experience, again, of being known, loved, and protected, and invested in spiritually and socially, she was able to experience firsthand God's love. She was able to, um, in time, as you can imagine, over years and years, forgive her parents' murderers. And now she's someone who says that she believes that God has called her to be used to continue to help bring reconciliation in her country and particularly to protect kids. And so she works as a child protection officer at an NGO called Save the Children. And she has dreams of becoming a minister for human rights in her country. So again, a painful story, but God has used the local church, the gospel message, a reconciliation efforts to really uh, grow and develop her and empower her. Allison, as I was mentioning, with having done stuff on dehumanization with film, and, and I'm in the midst of a, of a book on this subject as well, a question that I get asked a lot, and I want to throw it your way and ask you this question, is people will, will often ask me, Andy, you know, I get what you're saying about the whole dehumanization thing, and in particularly, we saw this in Rwanda with the language that was being used and communicated through radio, such as referring to the Tutsis as cockroaches as snakes. And, and really, that's the way the people saw them, and that's the way that the people treated them. And the question that, we'll, that I'll often get asked is, do you see this taking place in North America? Are there things going on in our own backyard that concern you? The short answer is yes, and perhaps my long answer is not much more than yes. <laughs> Um, I would say absolutely. I think um, without getting political, I would prefer not to do that. I think, you know, we look across the border in the U.S. and we just think about how immigration policy is being addressed, how uh, children, parents, families, survivors, refugees are being referred to by politicians and in the media and where the church may or may not be engaging in this conversation. And even if they're not engaging in the conversation, are they taking a stand to break down dividing walls, as we said, and to do their part to end this narrative that does dehumanize people? I think you heard me say, if we look across the border, I think we as Canadians often say that's happening. They are not here. I think we very much need to look in our own backyard and see where that may be happening and continue to guard against it. Absolutely. Yeah, I've seen that, you know, not just in the physical world, but you see this in the virtual world as well. There once was a day uh, as in the area of apologetics where I had to convince people that they weren't good, that people do bad things. And it, it almost sounds like a joke now to, to say that because in the advent of the Internet and things like YouTube comments, that's mm-hmm. not really a, an argument you have to make anymore. People tend to realize, yeah, we, we are pretty broken. And given a wall, even a virtual wall of my computer, I'll say pretty terrible things to other people. And it's a reminder to us that dehumanization comes easy. Humanization is difficult and requires reconciliation. It reminds me of Jesus' story to this teacher of the law who's coming to him and asking him about how to go to heaven. 
And he asks, mm. and, and you, you know, this, this exchange, it ends up leading to Jesus talking about the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus, you know, asks him, well, what do you think? And he says, well, love God, you know, love people. And, and Jesus tells him that he answers, you know, right. But then the Bible tells us, you know, gives a little insight and says, well, the man wants to justify himself. And so he asks Jesus, who's his neighbor? And you start to see that tribalism kind of coming out there again, right? Like, mm-hmm. well, I, I totally get that whole humanization thing, Jesus, but are you sure about, you know, these people, you know, and I think it's interesting that Jesus uses the illustration of a Samaritan that were the dehumanized people of that time, right? They were referred to as half breeds and not seen as, as a person to eat dinner with a, a person, even to walk through their land. Uh, yeah. And here Jesus, you know, challenges him on the way that he sees those people. And, when, and whenever I read that, the thought that always goes through my mind is, you know, Andy, if you were talking to Jesus and asked him that question, what parable would it be? The parable of the good what? What's the tribalism in your own life? Who are the people that you would prefer to justify? Well, I would stop on the road and help that person, but that person I might walk by. Because I think if we were to be honest with ourselves, this is something that you know, we really have to work at to make sure that we're seeing people correctly and that we are working to break down those walls and to take care of people. And as I look historically, Allison, I, a lot of people don't realize this, but dehumanization of children has a terrible long history. It's only been fairly recently that children have been viewed as human beings with dignity and to be treated with respect, which I think is probably surprising to some people. And again, comes back to the importance of the work that you guys are doing with Compassion International and what a tangible way that people can help. And maybe this would be a great spot. Like, first of all, if there's anything you want to say to what I just said, but then also what's a tangible way that people can get involved? How can they partner with you at Compassion Canada? Sure. Well, absolutely. Amen to everything that you just said. Um, You know, two brief anecdotes I would add or, or comments I would add. Number one is, I think the complexity when you talk about dehumanization, um, especially as Christ followers, is, you know, it's even happening in and amongst the church. And so I spend a lot of time reflecting on and thinking through kind of a centered set mentality versus a bounded set. And man, so the centered set being, can we all just recognize that our focus should be on the person of Jesus? And that the goal is to continue to get closer to him and to be transformed into his likeness. And as we do that, we grow closer to one another versus a bounded set mentality, which is here is my um, doctrine. Uh, Here is my theology. And we need to be aligned in order for us to be part of a grouping in a way that means some people are in and some people are out. And so, man, I would love to see the church continue to hold or transition to hold a centered set mentality on Christ as a starting point. And then imagine how that would ripple out to our relationships outside of the church. Number two, as it relates to kids, one of the things that we say at Compassion is we recognize children both as important objects of mission and also agents for mission. So objects of mission would be, you know, some of the things that you said, you know, in many ways you could say that kids are the most a volatile and fragile people group on the face of the planet. When you look at, um, you know, the, the extreme poverty rates and how it impacts kids in particular, it's just staggering. But more than that, 
is we see, you know, from a theological perspective and very practically being lived out, that kids are also agents for mission, that God is using them at ripe young ages to impact um, people in their own lives, to bring about change in their communities, to bring their parents and their neighbors to Christ as they learn about him in their local church. So absolutely, compassion is committed to kids, and we have the privilege of being able to walk alongside them and to learn from them as well. As far as how people can be practically involved, as I said, Compassion continues to provide trauma counseling for orphan children and youth in Rwanda as an integral part of our Holistic Child Development Program. So we're asking Canadians to participate by donating specifically to that trauma counseling. And that information can be found at compassion.ca slash Rwanda25. But also just by sponsoring a child in Rwanda is a way that you can continue to invest in their holistic development and invest in the future of their lives and the life of their community. And you can also just find that information on our website. Can people go with you to Rwanda? Yes, we do have exposure trips that go to a variety of countries every year where Canadians uh, can meet other Canadians and travel with a Compassion staff member to see firsthand the work of the local church and to meet a local staff members, kids and families. Um, those That information about upcoming trips can also be found on our website. I don't believe we have any coming up to Rwanda soon, but the other option is supporters can plan their own trips to Rwanda that we can support them in and we can coordinate efforts for them to meet uh, their sponsor child. I have uh, been to two compassion sites and uh, was thoroughly blown away by just how incredibly well organized they are, the integrity of the staff. And if I could just gush about Compassion International for a second here, one of the things I absolutely love about this organization, love about the work you guys are doing, is that it is done from a heart that loves Jesus. Uh, mm-hmm. And and that Jesus, it, like you were saying, it, it's center to what you're doing. And so I just commend the work you're doing. So incredibly thankful for this work. And obviously, uh, my family supports a number of Compassion children, and we will continue to do so. And I just encourage any listeners, please, please, please consider uh, partnering with Compassion. Um, sponsor a child. Go visit a Compassion National site. Do one of these exposure trips. Uh, get involved. Uh, it will thoroughly bless you. Wonderful. Thank you. We certainly appreciate every single one of our supporters. We simply could not, and our partners, we simply could not do what we do without the commitment and the love and the prayers of everyone who's involved in our ministry. Well, thank you so much, Allison, for being on our podcast. We really appreciate you and the work that you're doing. And as uh, October 25th comes uh, closer, we'll uh, look forward to your uh, new leadership. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Absolutely. It's been a joy chatting with you guys today. Thank you for joining us, listeners. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more things to think about. 